Wellington Links rely on partnerships and the amazing work of so many organizations and leaders to achieve our collective community goals. I hold dear the bonds of friendship. We are friends transforming communities through service. implement transformative programs that address the most critical needs of underserved communities. Welcome to LinkedIn Impact with the Arlington Links, a podcast which transforms our community by highlighting the issues, resources, and leaders that you need to know. What are your first memories of reading or of libraries I remember attending public libraries, seeing and thumbing through card catalogs. I remember participating in the Pizza Hut Book It program where we were rewarded for reading. And I remember scholastic book fairs where we got to get so excited about ordering new books. We always had a lot of books at home and I specifically remember Encyclopedia Britannica's. Reading is a pathway to imagination, to growth and to learning. And it really is an essential part of our communities. While attempts at and cries of censorship and violation of First Amendment rights are dominating conversations today, we wanted to chat with Tracy Hall, the Executive Director of the American Library Association, and discuss what communities can do to preserve a love and respect for reading and literacy, and also to learn more about how we can celebrate books. Enjoy the conversation. Tracy for joining us today. We're excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So if you could just tell us a little bit more about the American Library Association and what you all do. Yes, thank you for the opportunity. The American Library Association was founded in 1876 with the core mission of enhancing learning and ensuring access to information for all. So since that time, the association has been really concerned with promoting libraries, library services, library use, and also reaching out to the public and ensuring that the public has access to the kinds of formal and informal education offerings that libraries uniquely provide. That's great. You know, I just kind of think about and actually was reading an article recently about this, just, you know, the importance of public libraries. But I um, have just been thinking lately about my experience with libraries and how it was always very important for my mother that I, you know, just kind of spent time in a library. And I think that's a really valuable experience. And I'm, I'm hoping, I know there are some programs out there, but I'm really hoping that even in this more digital age that, you know, we're still doing everything we can. You know, it was everything from the school library to the community library. So I'm hoping that we're still able to make sure the younger generation gets the library experience. So can you talk about how ALA also promotes reading? I think in a lot of our communities, some people are still astonished about the illiteracy rates. I know that there was a lot of work going on to decrease that, but is there anything in particular that ALA does to promote reading? Yes, absolutely. And I'm really glad that you brought up all of those things, right? So we definitely want to ensure that 
we're raising the next generation of library stewards because I think one of the things that underpins our democracy is really founded on principles about information access, right? That we believe in this country that access to a library and access to information is a human right. Mm -hmm. And I think that will only last as long as we have people who will protect that right. So Mm -hmm. it is really critical that your mom raised a library kid, right? Because I get a chance to benefit from that because you're interested in the work of the American Library Association. My family raised a library kid too. That has everything to do with why I actually became a librarian because I was exposed really, really early to libraries and uniquely so in terms of juxtaposition to my family, which my maternal side um, have very limited formal education and no access to libraries. In rural Louisiana, we know that in the segregated South, if there were libraries at all serving communities, a lot of times people of color, particularly Black people, did not have access mm-hmm. to those libraries during segregation. And on the other side, my paternal side, my father's grandmother actually ran a one-room uh, schoolhouse in East oh, Texas. Wow. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. So I think both sides of my family were keenly interested in education, but sometimes maybe with different origin stories. And so I think it is important that we're raising a next generation of library stewards, people who will not only work in libraries, but maybe sit on library boards who might be city managers and mayors and governors who are ensuring that the libraries in their state or in their cities are well-funded. So this conversation is really important. But really, when it comes to adult low literacy, which I think is the question here, we know that across the country, in almost every state, you're going to find a community where there are sometimes as high as two out of five adults, certainly one out of six adults who have limited adult literacy, meaning that they're not able to read on a third or fifth grade level. And we also know that low literacy is usually an indicator or marker for generational poverty, meaning Mm. that people who tend to have very low literacy sometimes will raise children who might have limited literacy or who may not graduate from high school. And if you don't graduate from high school, that just precludes sometimes, you know, any type of access to a livable wage. And certainly even that's not going to be the conduit to a livable wage. Today, it is usually the bachelor's degree and still only 30% of people in the country have a bachelor's degree. So ALA really takes seriously the work of adult literacy. Currently, we are part of a collective called All In of major educational and literacy organizations that are really interested in cracking the adult low literacy nut because we know that a very limited number of people who need access to English, to adult instruction, literacy instruction in English have access to it. And that's something that we're trying to solve for. And there are libraries across the country, increasing an increasing number that are offering literacy instruction in the library or coordinating literacy instruction in the city. And I'm involved in this conversation because when I first became a librarian, when I first got my master's degree, within a year or two, I became a certified adult literacy instructor because in a lot of the libraries that I worked in, People were increasingly coming up to me after getting to know each other and confiding in me that they did not know how to read. And what's more, they didn't know where to go 
to get help for that. And so it felt like it was critical if we were going to be serving people in terms of library services, that we also offered literacy services. And ALA right now is vested in making sure that that happens more and more across the country. And uh, I'm really excited about the work ahead in that regard. Thank you so much for sharing that. We're really happy about all the great work that the American Library Association is doing. And I don't think that a lot of people know all of the great work that you're doing. So thank you. And I'm really glad that you mentioned the idea of it, you know, basically being a right. I served in the Peace Corps for two years in Paraguay, South America. And something that I'll always remember is that they were so astonished by the fact that in our library system, you actually check out books, you know, usually have two weeks or whatever to bring it back. Like they were so surprised. They were like people, they didn't think people would bring the books back in Paraguay. So I just, whenever I think about libraries, I always think about that and just how that's just a part of our culture. Of course, you know, there are people that have overdue books or do not return them, but that's just a part of our society. You return your books. So thank you so much for sharing that. So can you talk a little bit about censorship? You know, there's a lot in the news these days about book bans. We've established, you know, the importance of reading, how it really is an important part of our culture and having access to books. Can you share a few examples of censorship in the U.S. and also how it's been conducted with historical events? So how did we get to where we are today in terms of censorship? Yeah, well, I definitely want to say that there's a deep connection between censorship and low literacy. I write about compulsory illiteracy, the history in this country and others of ensuring that people don't have access to literacy or to education in order to keep them vulnerable, economically vulnerable, to keep their labor free or low wage. I mean, you know, obviously we think about enslavement where there were Black codes all over the country not only forbade Black people to learn to read, but also exacted harsh punishments against anyone, white or otherwise, who would teach enslaved Africans to read. And so, and then we sort of see that happening again in terms of voting rights, right? Or just access to the ballot in which people who wanted to vote had to demonstrate that, that they had this really high levels of literacy and understanding of of complex U.S. history, but at the same time had been denied any of that education. And, And I love to tell the story about Harriet Tubman, Moses, the Moses of our people, who was renowned for her bringing enslaved Africans out of um, chattel slavery and into free states and territories. But during the Civil War, when there was a need to set up nursing camps in places that were really hard for traditional sort of hospitals to access or traditional medical care, because she had in fugitivity learned, you know, a lot about healing through natural roots and and herbs and all of that. She was, a letter was written to her by the governor of South Carolina, asking her if she would please enlist in South Carolina to help the troops. If she had been caught with that letter, now this is the irony, she would be sentenced to very harsh punishment, even death. And so I I really like to think about censorship as being sort of that conundrum. It is so against 
our democratic principles. And so we had censorship, you know, in, in some ways, this country is sort of built on compulsory literacy or censorship of information for some people. And today we see the same thing happening. I mean, when we see the types of books that are being censored, books about civil rights, books about histories of enslavement or poverty, the hill we climb, Amanda Gorman, which is really about the democratic principle of everyone coming together, no matter what their history in this country. When you see that book being banned because some believe it to be about just civil rights and civil liberties and freedom of expression, then you really know that censorship really doesn't have a real rational basis. There are some who will want to say, well, you know, it's about indecency, but our greatest works of literature usually have something in there that is going to appeal to many and maybe offend a few. That is the mark of great literature, that it unsettles us or that it gives us something to think about. But today, when you see the types of books that are being banned, there really is no excuse. And increasingly, you're hearing the book banners say, oh, I haven't read these books. You know, I'm just trying to protect my children or my community. And I think that there's something wrong when someone says, I haven't read these books, but I'm trying to do anything because it, it tells you that there's a lot of misinformation, a lot of disinformation I'm going around. And of course, censorship is built on those types of things, misinformation, disinformation, and information withdrawal, which ultimately is what censorship is. Absolutely. So what exactly is Banned Books Week? Yeah, so ALA, almost 60 years ago now, and some of it was in response to the McCarthy era of the late 40s and 50s with uh, Senator Joseph McCarthy, you know, banning upwards of over 30,000 books, you know, books like Civil Disobedience by Thoreau, which had become a primer for early primer for the civil rights movement or uh, Robin Hood, because it dared the book uh, dared talk about wealth distribution as opposed to wealth hoarding. So when you look at the kinds of books that were being banned or called out, the kinds of authors that were being censored under McCarthy, Banned Books Week is an effort to lift up literature and say, instead of suppressing this literature, we should understand what these great works of history are trying to tell us about, about who we are, about our principles, our values, and even how they change. So Banned Books Week is a time when we celebrate um, some of the greatest uh, literary works. It, when we talk about books within our families, our communities, form band book club in our neighborhood. And it is also when we get a chance to hear from great authors like Ibram X. Kendi and Ta-Nehisi Coates and really learn about our history and why it is so important that free people read freely. And I think Band Books Week this week is coming up in early October, and we are so excited. We have an honorary chair who I can't disclose yet, who I think everybody is going to be excited about and even nostalgic. So Band Books Week is really when we uplift why everyone should have not only the right to read, but the right to write their histories and their lived experiences. So very important. And, you know, obviously this conversation is just really timely. We look at everything that's going on around the nation right now in terms of trying to restrict, you know, basically what you're saying, what we read, what we write, what we learn, and then really what we say. So, you know, we're just just kudos to ALA for, 
keeping up the fight on this important issue. Can you talk, so a lot of the work that we do with the links is our partnerships with other organizations, and we're always thinking about ways we can transform our communities. Can you talk a little bit just in general or any specific examples you've seen of how reading is so important for our communities, just for everybody? Yes, definitely. One thing I definitely want to say of thinking about how people can get involved in the movement to keep reading free. And it's sad that we have to say this, right? Before he died, Representative John Lewis said that he believed that access to the internet and information more broadly would become the civil rights issue of the 21st century. And once again, he was prescient, you know, as always. He was as prescient then, you know, right before he died as he was when he was 16 years old and trying to desegregate Troy, Alabama Public Library, right? So this is someone, I think, who was also married to a librarian, but understood even in his youth why it is so important that we keep the lines of expression, communication, and information open and unfettered. And so I want to let everybody know that to do that, go to www.uniteagainstbookbans.org. The American Library Association was the first organization to launch a national campaign, and it's the largest campaign um, really to fight against censorship and to ensure that access to reading and information access is a human right, as I said earlier. But in our communities, what can we do? It is important that we learn together. Healthy communities learn together. Healthy communities come together and they talk about ideas. Healthy communities come together and they share and they learn from each other. Healthy communities have intergenerational activities where information is transferred from one community to another. So there are a few things I would say. One is if you are near a library, public or school, support it, advocate for it, ensure that it is well-funded, run for boards. If you're in a community that is transitioning at all, or a community where there's a lot to be proud of, like most of our communities, create a community archive, a digital community archive, where people can scan photographs of their homes, of people who may have lived early in their family, or people who are of note in that community, and create a digital archive online for your community. You will be surprised how many people who don't even live in the community anymore will come and visit and say, well, you know, here's what that store used to be. Or did you know that at one point this person of note lived in this particular house? That's really important because a lot of times our communities can be devalued because of what we see. It's really important that we understand that culture and history are assets. And then lastly, what I would say is that in addition to all of that, create a book swap or a book club, something that might be intergenerational or where neighbors can host in backyards or in a community center. Ask the library if they'll do programs in your neighborhood if you have a dense neighborhood or use the community space in a library to host writing programs, journaling programs, to create your own books, to inspire authorship. There's so much to do to write our communities and even our families and ancestors into history because too often they're left out. And I want to encourage everyone to not only read, but to write. I love that, Tracy, for two reasons. I have gotten into genealogy over the past yes. four years, done all the 
ancestry DNA tests and obviously relying on a lot of records to see, you know, just obviously census records, pictures. Obviously, I'm getting them digitally, but, but they're coming from libraries. So that is really exciting. And I have family members that are actually able to go to some of these rooms and see things. And that's great, too. And then also, I actually just did an interview here in Arlington, Virginia with the public library. Well, it was it's an oral history project put on by the League of Women Voters of Arlington and Alexandria. And so I was able to just kind of tell my story. And I'm hoping that someday in the future, you know, researchers or people who are just curious will be able to go to the history room in the library and hear me talking about what it is to live in the year 2023. So yes, I know firsthand, you know, just the power and the importance of libraries. So Tracy, thank you so much. We really enjoyed speaking with you today. Is there anything else you want to leave the listeners with? I want to leave the listeners with this. You yourself, Krista, live in a very historical community, a very important community, I should say, because the Alexandria Public Library was the site of one of the earliest sit-ins. The Mm. first sit-ins did not happen at lunch counters. One of the very first sit-ins on record happened at the Barrett branch of the Alexandria, Virginia Public Library when five young men went in and asked for library cards and upon being denied, young Black men, upon being denied access to a library that Black taxpayers were paying for but couldn't use, they began to sit down and actually read books. And that act of civil disobedience led to their arrest. The library wouldn't be desegregated for another 20 years, and it would take even more years for this group of uh, five young men to be acknowledged for what they did. And what they did directly makes me possible as the first Black woman to hold the role of executive director of the American Library Association. And what they did makes it possible for so many of us to enjoy using public and school and academic libraries. So you yourself are in such an important place. And there are places like that all over this country. So I hope this conversation encourages people to learn your library history and to do more in building your community archive as well. Awesome, Tracy. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Tracy and that you spend time reflecting on and ensuring our communities have access to reading and books and how this has the power to transform our communities. For more information on the Arlington, Virginia chapter, please visit our website, arlingtonlinksinc.org and follow us on social media at Arlington Links.